Hey everybody, Emily here. Just wanted to let you know that we're running a giveaway for a people's guide to publishing by the person we are about to interview on the show, Mr. Joe Beal of Microcosm Publishing in Portland, Oregon. It's a great book. I've read the whole thing. Totally amped me up, got me inspired. If you're ever interested in how publishing works on a nuts and bolts basis, but you also don't like being bored, then get in on this giveaway. You'll see it on our Facebook page at Hybrid Pub Scout. You will also see it on our website, and I will bug you about it wherever I can find you. I see you've got some tabs marked there. Is that better? Those are all the factual objections you found? <laughs> no, I just want to start my company someday, so mm-hmm. I'm taking a lot of notes. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I'm going to ask about are business-related things. It's cool. So okay. the whole thing with our podcast is trying oh, I, to... I listened to it. Yeah. You did? Which ones did you listen to? I listened to about 10 different ones. I did not know um, that there was such an interest in erotica and... Uh, I mean, I learned a lot about, and it's not like something that, I mean, I've never for fun read a book like that. Not because I'm like, oh my God, but more just because I'm like, not, you don't this get is, anything I out don't, of it. yeah, yeah. I, I just, I can't read fiction. It's like a brain thing. At all? Like yeah. fiction yeah. of any kind? I've tried. Interesting. Many times. I read, I mean, I read fantasy books when I was like 12, but even then I, it was just kind of, you know, it's kind of like watching television. Oh, you know, yeah, where yeah. you're just like, meh. You feel take like it or leave it. there's no like purpose to it for you or Yeah, I get nothing out of it. Yeah. I just have to like suppress the whole time that I'm like this is all lies. Welcome to the Hybrid Pub Scout podcast with me, Emily Einalander, and Corinne is snowed in in her brand new house today. So um, she has asked me to ask some questions on her behalf, and I will indicate which ones those are. Um, And we're very happy, or technically, I am very happy today (laughs) to uh, have Joe Beal of Microcosm uh, Publishing on today. And would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, sure. So I'm the the founder and the CEO of Microcosm Publishing. We're a small press in the global sense, um, but a you know in the sense of Portland, we're one of the larger. Uh, we were the oldest press in Portland, but then a certain uh, Image Comics moved here. And, uh, well, you know. well, I mean. In Portland, you've been here longer. So that's true. Yeah. That is very true. And and you know, and so it's an interesting thing too. I, I we we're a year older than Tin House, so I've really held on to that <laughs> notion that we were the were like the oldest commercial book publisher mm-hmm. until a few years ago, mm-hmm. and now we're just one of. Does Tin House participate in that banter with you? They do. They're not nearly as competitive. It's like they don't have a dog in the fight. But I will tell you, when we joined the Pub West organization, Mm -hmm. they were very particular when we made that kind of assertion. Oh, yeah, because that would make a lot of sense if you're using that as a publicity angle because there's like there's companies here like graphic arts that are older than we are but they're you know they're owned by ingram so they're not actually independent presses right they're they're not primarily producing book products you know or similarly like pomegranate you know is here now also recent import 
-hmm. they you know but they you know they produce things like puzzles and things you know they make books and yeah but Mm -hmm. it is it's just a different um you know so then you have to just put like more and more qualifiers in there all right well (laughs) and uh to that point can you tell us a little about your origin story i know that you used to make zines and you continue to make zines so um could you please talk about all of the things that you have been publishing um and Corinne wanted to know if you think zine culture is still as vibrant as it used to be. Yeah, that is, it's, it's okay. So I was born in Cleveland. Um, and so, you know, and it's like, and as like an important piece of set dressing or origin story or what have you, it's like in the seventies when I was growing up in Cleveland, it was like, you know, we were just getting, the city was just going through a recession or I'm sorry, like bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> more than recession you know um and you know and it was a weird time because it was like just a really strong um you know sort of similar to how the u.s is now broadly where you had really strong stratified ideas about like conservatism and you know the idea that the city should own the public utilities and that didn't you know they had to sell them off to pay off the bankruptcy uh-huh. And, you know, and so it's just like I I saw massive unemployment when I was a child. So it's like, you know, and it is that weird thing to like grow up during, you know, sort of this time where you think the world is going to like explode into nuclear winter and like nobody has a job and like the sky alternates between orange and gray. And, you know, and so it's kind of like this weird thing where you kind of feel like you can do whatever you want because nothing means anything, you know. And that, and like, maybe that's not, I mean, obviously that's not what everybody would take from it, but that's what I took from it. You know, I was really like, okay, this is, um, you know, I should do what is meaningful to me, you know? And so when I was fairly young, I, um, you know, I had a bad drinking problem and I have autism, but I didn't know it yet then, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they had, uh, a not. You know, it's just there wasn't, like, support structures and, you know, obviously, as you can see, like, like in the U.S. Right, today, right. there was a lack of uh, resources. There was a lack, you know, the budgets would just get cut to the bone and you'd sort of lose things that were vital for just, like, a support system in society. Right. And so, um, but when I was young, you know, I met Harvey Picar, if you know who that is. Uh, he was the person that made comic books not right. be about superheroes. Right. And, um and that, you know, things like that, and then learning that, like, Superman had been invented in Cleveland, like, the character had been written in, like, self-published zines, you know, in 1929, like, that was really fascinating to young Joe. And I really got into that. And, you know, and it's funny, too, because I didn't, you know, I went to the largest high school in the state of Ohio, you know, and I did not, I definitely struggled majorly, and I should not have graduated but they wanted to get rid of me you know <laughs> yes <laughs> and and i think many people at that time kind of know that sort of story right that it was like i was enough trouble that they were like okay we'll graduate push him. it through yeah. yeah and so all that stuff you know it was kind of like i didn't and i was not assigned to read a single book the entire time i was in high school which i feel like is just so wild and weird was that just you or was that everyone I well, I'm told that after I graduated, they read Frankenstein, but like, I'm assuming that like, what would you say? That's like a seventh or eighth grade reading level. I mean, okay, we don't need to judge, <laughs> but that was like the seniors read it. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and and so things like that, where it was just like, I don't know, 
I guess it was so it was like subcultural things that I found that made me interested in reading. So it right. was like when I was um let's see it was like 1991 there started to be like local punk rock shows that people would put on and that I don't know how I knew that would be interesting but you know, I guess it was the, it was like put on by the cool kids, I guess is how you knew. And, you know, but it had like that element of danger. Right. And there was definitely like weird things. Like I went to, um, and so like Cleveland is on the beach, but the beaches are all like really toxic and gross and weird. Right. And so um, these older kids that I'm still a little bit in touch with, at one point they like rented out this like concrete bunker on the beach and, then, and it like Fun. had the worst acoustics oh you know, they just... play the shows in there yeah. no 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 and it was, <laughs> and, you know and it was just like this thing where it's like open air but concrete you know so it just sounded awful and you know but to me that was like so magical and transformative that you know doing that and then being like okay it's like you know and that was sort of how I learned like social mores and like ethics and right because it's like I wasn't really parented either like mm-hmm. it was kind of like school where they were just like okay like do you know go just don't be trouble for us you are too much trouble for us Aww. turn that down you know yeah and so uh, and my dad was just like severely disabled he had multiple strokes when I was really young so it was just kind of another thing where I was just like nothing means anything right you know? right and and there was very little hope in that world so by like 1996 like kids my age had like founded a punk club that they like rented and like and I thought that was amazing so I got involved in that and I would put on shows there and then, you know, and I would hang out with them and get drunk every night. And that was really cool. And then that was sort of, and I don't remember this per se, but I ran into one of the guys from that era in LA fairly a few years ago. And in Cleveland, you say guys, even if it's like nine women. And oh, a we're dog. From, yeah, I'm from California. So <laughs> we do the same thing. <laughs> and so, um, and like we talked about this era and, um, and the, you know, the person was just like, you were drunkenly babbling about how you were going to like start this thing and then you did it, you know, and I have no recollection of this whatsoever, (laughs) but apparently that was like my teenage self had been like talking about that even before I was doing it. So when you say starting this thing, I mean, was it similar? Uh, No, not similar at all. So initially I would, um, I would steal photocopies and I would make zines and I would like set up milk crates like on the bar of the punk club. Mm -hmm. And then I would sell records and stuff too. And then I began like I, and then that was kind of how I figured out how to write. Okay. I think. Well, for the young listeners, could you please uh, (laughs) elucidate what a zine is a little bit? Sure. So a zine is is like a book, um, but it is like more like a love letter than a book. And there is some, you know, like you would take a word origin to think it has more to do with a magazine, but that would be wrong. It has much more to do with a book than a magazine. But it's sort of about, it's like a subcultural passion project, you know, where you're like, and it's really across the board where like there's libertarian zines, there's zines about how like weird experimental awesome shoes, there's zines about Star Trek, there's zines about anything. Like in the original zines were about wrestling and science fiction, you know. Or if you really want to go back, they're like about, you know, the like American Revolution, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so um those kind of things, you know, and so the ones that I had access to were like sort of derivative of the 70s zines, so they were about music primarily. Okay. 
And then, but I didn't, I don't know, you know, and so I felt like I needed to write about music at first, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really care about that, you know? Right. Like, I liked sort of the ethos, and I liked the feel, and I liked the camaraderie, and I liked hanging out with all the people, and I liked all the, like, positive endorphins in my brain. Right. But, and there's definitely, like, music from that era that I still listen to, but I don't listen to, like, new music, you know? Like, it's not the music that I liked, it's, like, that belonging, you know? Right. And so for, I don't know, and, you know, so, like, bearing all of this in mind that I had never read a book in high school, (laughs) it seems completely absurd that I would think that I would then start a publishing company. Well, do you think that in some way, because you didn't read books in high school, that you had the freedom to create something different than, than what one would think of as a traditional publishing company? Yeah, so um, you know how like, well, I don't know, maybe I should only speak for myself here. So when I was a teenager, I was horribly pompous because I was a teenager. Yeah. And so my attitude was really like, I know about really cool things and other people don't know about them. So thus it is my duty to like spend my life making, you know, this. Spread the good word. Yeah. (laughs) And I really thought of it like by and large as like, these are resources that would have benefited me when I was younger to right. know about. So that's what I should put my energy behind. And that was kind of the other reason that music wasn't that interesting to me. Do you find that that's still kind of a, a root uh, purpose and driving force in like microcosms editorial a hun- strategy or a hundred percent? Yeah. yeah. It's like, that is the conversation. Yeah. You know, it's like every time we have a submission, that's like, even the people that like weren't yet born when like microcosm was starting, that's how they approach it too. Right. You right. Know? So that's that is like something I'm very proud of. Well, and I am curious. So um, I have read your new book, uh, People's Guide to Publishing, and you go a lot into how important it is to have your niche and your mission um, as a guiding force in the books that you acquire. And I'm interested in whether you just find these books whether the people who write them write them especially for microcosm or just how they get developed in such a specific way to fit um your mission statement and your niche right so it's threefold um most of our authors are our fans and our readers first if that makes sense Mm -hmm. you know so um there are cases where somebody has been pitching something around for a while and then they pitch it to us and then it works it does fit but you know by and large those you know anytime somebody is pitching to every publishing company (laughs) it's like nobody is going to take it you know it's sort of my blanket response to that to blanket pitching but the you know it's 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 like it's in thirds i would say you know so we'll work with um an author Sometimes where if somebody has a pitch that's close, we'll sort of workshop it with them to be like, this is something we would be interested in, but this doesn't really quite work as it sits. Right. You know, especially if it's like somebody that I am a fan of their work and I respect them, you know, that's one thing. But it's, you just can't always get there, you know? And a lot of times it's like when you sort of redirect somebody, they will just use that as an opportunity to argue with you about why you are wrong and why you should accept it. Right. And, you know, and for us, it like, it costs us five figures to publish a book. You know, it's a lot of money and resources, you know? Yeah. So that's the other thing where you're just like, you don't, 
like we know our craft, you know, and that um, so that part of it, you know, sometimes you do get a pitch where somebody did put in the time and they did the research and they figured out who we are and what we care about. And they is that's the driver for them. That's the motivator, you know, and a lot of times, you know, I guess that's the other advantage of being, you know, we're in our 24th year. You get people that come in and they're like. I've been reading your books for years and that's how I always thought about books too. Here's my pitch. I'm sure you're not interested, you know, <laughs> like those are always the, the perfect pitches, you know, that's the very coy. Mm-hmm. I don't care whether and you I do it or not. And I think they mean it, you know, I think it's a sincere, like, but I'm sure you'd never be interested, but it's because that's sort of the kind of underdog that we appeal to. And probably an author that you would want to work with with a little bit of humility as well. Yeah. And it's whenever somebody comes in and they're like, I hired my friend to design a book cover and it's all edited and ready to go. You just have to hit the start button. Those Do they treat you like a printer? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I joke that they treat us like an ATM with distribution. You know? Right. Yeah. And because the, and those books never work anyway. Right. And they aren't done is no. the other problem. And the cover isn't right. And the title development is not right you know and so um we get a lot uh, you know and sometimes we will if we've worked with an author before and so we do have editorial meetings like a normal like traditional sort of publisher right um and in those meetings people will sort of workshop and brainstorm ideas for things that would work well you know so it's like sales talks to you know people in other departments and they're really good at being like yeah this would really be a lot of fun and would go over really well and then we will then if we worked with an author in the past we will say would you be interested in writing this book right right and and, or if like we're acquainted with somebody we'll sort of do the same thing you know Mm -hmm. and that so we get a lot of books that way so that's probably about a third and then it is probably a third where the person does do the time to pitch something that works and then there's about a third where you know we will sort of workshop um or so you know yeah like we'll make it work with a submission until it's functional right i um one thing that i thought was interesting is you talked about how the idea that no one has ever done this before is a really bad paradigm to use and i would like you to talk a little about why that is and um also your suggestion that uh a uh, concept maybe can be used in a smaller sense and then scaled up like from a zine to a book if people are interested. Sure, sure. So we, um, and the, we, we were, you know, Microcosm is primarily self-distributed through most of our history. Um, but we were many years ago, I think 16 or no, 17 years ago now. Wow. We were distributed by National Book Network, who is like a very traditional company. Um, they're in, I think, Pennsylvania or Maryland. Um, and they, had even back then you know that was very much their um feedback was like you know because it's like so when you work with a distributor as a publisher it's like you're basically using their sales team and you're doing the editorial development and such and the acquisition and they're doing the like to market and the warehousing and things like that and so they're they're, they have the perception that publishers don't know the market 
which right. may or may not be accurate. You know, it depends on the publisher. Mm-hmm. And so they would come back, and that was their number one like immediate piece of feedback. Because like, never tell us that your idea has never been done before. Right. Like you want to tell us three similar successful books. So we can then show your book to our customers and then they can look at your book and then look at the success they've had with the books that you're referencing and be like, oh, I get it. This is what this book is about. This is how well we would do with that book. And this is how many we want to order, you know. And so the problem, the reason there's a, there's numerous reasons why this has never been done before it doesn't work, you right. know. Mostly because it's just not true, you know. (laughs) There's millions of books in print, you know. The likelihood that you had an idea that has never been done is virtually nil at this point, you know. It just means you haven't gone out and done your homework, you know. and Or it means there's a very good reason why the book shouldn't exist. Right, right. You know, we have many books... um, we had someone submit a book to us, How to Argue with People on the Internet, oh. where I'm just like, no. Uh, no. One page, don't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we, you know, or just so many books about things that nobody would perceive themselves as the audience for. Right. Or even, like, perceive as a gift for someone that they know, because even someone they don't like, you know. <laughs> And and that's sort of the biggest trouble that you run into is, um, you know, and so my, like my, I think I used it in the People's Guide to Publishing is like, my constant joke is like, Grandpa's War Stories does not need to be a mass produced book. Right. You right. know, like everyone in your family will probably enjoy it. And they've probably heard them all already. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it is, but it's like that thing where. There's lots of opportunity to get that elsewhere. There's lots of books in print like that. You know, in like 1890, people would have probably eaten up books about like the Civil War. But nowadays, you're not exactly going to go out and be like, I wonder, you know, who, if some random guy's grandpa is, you know, like what what experience there was like in World War II, you know? (laughs) And so there's a bit of that. And, you know, and so... It's you really want to come in when you're approaching a publisher and say, this is why I feel like you're a good fit. And you don't want that to be dishonest, you know, because that's sort of the other thing that we get a lot of is people will pitch fiction as nonfiction to us or um, to make it fit within the guidelines. Oh, they'll just kind of like try to shove that square peg into the round hole. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and so... um, and then when you, you know, by the time it's like to the editors who are not stupid, you know, they will come back and be like, how did you know what this person was thinking in this moment in time for this person that is now deceased? <laughs> right. <laughs> because that's not something you could possibly have known. No, no. And then the person will come back and be like, oh, well, I think it's more interesting told this way. Or, you know, I think people would rather read this version than, you know, <laughs> right. an accurate account. <laughs> I, I you know, and then you just kind of have to scratch your head and wonder, like, why would you do that? Well, but, at that point, it's historical fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we get that kind of thing a lot. Yeah, well, I think this might be the right time to talk about Henry and Glenn. <laughs> right, right, okay. <laughs> this and, is something Corinne wanted to hear about was uh, <laughs> both uh, the uh, writing production Henry and Glenn forever and uh, the uh, the subjects um, mm-hmm. reactions to it. <laughs> 
So um, I had an old an old friend actually, um, whose name was Dylan Williams, and he sadly passed away some years ago. But he had introduced me, and he was a publisher. He had a comic uh, company called Sparkplug. Okay. Um, that he published under for many years. Um, he started before we did, and um, and he introduced me at one point to Tom Neely, who um, had created Henry and Glenn Forever with I think five of his friends, four of his friends, and um, and I don't I don't know why Dylan didn't do it because it was. I mean, it's a pretty amazingly weird book, similar to what Dylan published. Did they just think he thought you'd have a better time selling it or something you could bring to it that he couldn't? I think the authors wanted us for whatever reason, you know? And so, um, and, you know, and this is one of those moments where I am not a very good publisher because (laughs) the author pitched it to me and I said, I don't really think anyone knows, like, understands it because the book conceives this idea that Henry Rollins and Glenn Danzig are like even greater cartoonish amalgamations of themselves. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and um, and because you know the 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 joke is that they're both so exaggerated that their their public right. personalities are just too big for life. You know yeah. that there's no way that any real person is like that and um, you know and this has become such lore that you get a lot of stories and you know that was that was even before you know they wrote this book in 2004 so it's like before the time of you know sort of internet clickbait news stories about these guys and then everybody knows how they are because they've seen everything that they reacted to but there were rumors you know sort of at that time um about all kinds of just like funny stories of people like meeting them and just like how the you know the actual guys were quite boring and weird and you know in various like stories about henry lifting weights and Mm -hmm. that being like a euphemism and things like that (laughs) and so um and you know and it was like at that point you didn't know what was true or not and so the book like made it go a step further to put them in a relationship together and then that hall of notes were their next door neighbors who were D &D playing satanists (laughs) but like actually you know because that was the other part of the 80s was that D &D was actually like yeah and so um, and then that was an actual rumor about Hall and Oates was that they were Satanists. I don't know if you. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. That's um, really funny to me. And um, and those guys have a tremendous sense of humor. Awesome guys. So how did they react to it? They said the only thing that isn't true about this book is that we don't live next door to Henry and Glenn. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> which, which you no, know, I was just like, how are you so good at this? And I watched. Um, after that, I, I, you know, I, I had never been a tremendous fan because it was, you know, like painfully not cool when I was a kid right. to be into Hollow Notes. Right. So I did. I like went back and I like watched the documentaries and I was like, oh, these guys are actually like quite clever. You know, uh-huh. I just never would have thought that because it's a little subtle, you know. Right, right, right. And um, and so, you know, it's a weird book. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, you know, and the, and all of the jokes are from the 80s. Right, right. You know, and yeah. so, and this was 20 years later. So I was just like, nobody remembers who these guys are. You know, they were sort of between acts at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think 
this is a book. I think this is like a bar joke, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to... <laughs> you know? And, um, and, the, and Tom, like to his credit, he was like, okay, well, if you can't sell them, I'll just buy them all back from you. There you go. And an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, yeah. And we sold out within two weeks of that first printing, you know. And so that That's was great. And then, like, I think we sold like sixty some thousand that first year, and that you know, and it was just really a wild, weird thing. Mm-hmm. And I've never. And it was like that was about the time when you know these you would start to have blogs be like a major launching pad for book sales. Oh yeah, I remember. Know. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty unheard of. And, you know, so it was like we were so short supplied, like we weren't even getting it into stores because it was just constantly selling out of printings. And, yeah. You know, and so that was when it was a weird thing. And I didn't really know that like Henry had, had like a short lived talk show and that things had like sort of, you know, they had many second, third, fourth, fifth acts apiece. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were both really like, you know, fairly dynamic rebounders, yeah. you know. And um, and so that was kind of why it worked so well. And then we did a sequel, and you know, a number of sequels. And Corinne wants to know if uh, Glenn Danzig's sourpuss reaction to it uh, helped sell the book. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so um, there's many, many amazing things. So this is the other thing when you are the publisher of Henry and Glenn Forever is that people come up, and now I have heard every story about. Both oh, real people you can imagine. I'm sure. But my favorite about to your question is that um, so there's two two pieces here. So we did find out through third party channels that Glenn's manager has a list of interview topics that you are not allowed to ask about, <laughs> and you can guess which book <laughs> we were told ended up on that list Uh, awesome (laughs) and you can imagine that when you are showing said list to say reporters who write articles that that does tremendous things for book sales (laughs) i'm not allowed to ask about this and i believe this is called the streisand effect when you promote something that you don't want people to know about is that what happened with barbara's yeah oh yeah so it's like hate listening yes and so (laughs) that you know, we got so many reviews, and then it got to the point where, like, they can't always legislate that. So it's like, right. you know, when he's being interviewed by MTV, they're not allowed to tell MTV, you're not allowed to ask about the book, you know? So yeah. they would, you know? Because <laughs> they could. And then I think it was like a Rolling Stone article where they, they said, You have been very critical of Henry and Glenn forever. Like, do you not have a sense of humor? <laughs> <laughs> and then Glenn went very, very far to be like, who and expanded on it tremendously and said, like, I have a sense of humor. The problem is that the book is not funny and the authors are losers. And, you know, and that's it was, kind of, and, you know, and it's like in Rolling Stone. So it's not like nobody's noticing. No, that's, that's great. And then um, Decibel, which is um, like a metal magazine. Okay. The reporter gave us the like unedited transcript of the entire interview where Glenn went on and on and on and was like clearly very upset about it. <laughs> and it, you know, and it's things like that where I'm just like, you don't know when to stop, you know? But it, it totally, I mean, obviously it tremendously helped sell the book because then. It was every time he was in the news, he, they right. mentioned the book. Right, because it know? got him going. 
Yeah, and even if they weren't interviewing him, even if it was just like an article about him doing something else, it'd be like, and this book, and that time he did this other thing embarrassing, and the time that he got, you know, punched out backstage, and the time that he was photographed wearing his own band's t-shirt while buying kitty glitter, you know, and and it was like just like became part of the rigmarole, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, and you do at some point like kind of feel bad that like he doesn't understand like how to mitigate this problem. Right. Right. That he can't just laugh it off. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but then at RollerCon, which is like the roller derby convention a few years ago, I had a woman come up to me that said that she, her best friend is part of the management team for Danzig. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and this is maybe the furthest stretch. She said that, he doesn't actually hate the book, but hating the book has become part of the persona that he has to perform. And so he's actually like pretty into it, but it doesn't work for him to be somebody that like comes across as having a sense of humor. Well, and it wouldn't be very fun for him to break character. And that also serves the book, it sounds like. <laughs> Which, you know, and so I'm like, this seems a little bit of a stretch. Or a little on the nose. Yeah. In a different way. <laughs> right. And so I, you know, and so that's the thing. But like, even that I was, you know, I had a few days where I was just like, whoa, <laughs> could that be true? And I was like, it doesn't actually matter if it's true or not. It's hilarious. Does attention like that feel a little precarious um, when one of your books gets that much uh, publicity or um, do you worry that it could go in a bad direction for you or no. is it just always good? We, we did ask, um, and then they did, um, they also, management was also like spreading the rumor that they were going to like prosecute us out of existence. Right. So we were, <laughs> so we began sending them letters pleading to, because like what would be better publicity than that? <laughs> you know? That's so, a bold strategy. <laughs> Cause it's all, I mean, it's also like it had been through like so many legal departments at so many companies and they and every one of them was like this is a work of parody it's like completely protected by fair use like yeah. you yeah. can do this and so uh, you know we were like bring it on <laughs> see <laughs> you know? what happens you know and like we have a very good like person that does that for us you know and mm-hmm. so we were just mm-hmm. like whoa wow this would be so much fun <laughs> and like this would be like the biggest media we ever received mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and um and so I don't know. I didn't really. I mean, it definitely felt a little weird because obviously, for the few years after that, the submissions we got were a little bit like bad reproductions Parody. of that. Oh yeah, you know? with different celebrities and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And well, um, you have a Morrissey book as well. Or- <laughs> yeah, and that that's a little bit different. It's like not an imitator or a spawn. You know, it's that was done like so. The, it, that that book is cre- it's the book is defensive eating with Morrissey. It's part of a series with comfort eating with Nick Cave, um, and we have some new ones about the Ramones eating pizza and um, uh, ladies that lunch with Lydia Lunch, and um, we have a few uh, others. Oh, and uh, backyard barbecuing with Metallica will also be joining it. Um, and you know, these are created by. Like both, uh, well, I guess you would say, you could say infamous or reputable, depending on the day. Vegan chef who like does the actual recipes, and so it's like edible, you know, it's practical. And then the woman that created the goths eating meme, which was a uh, internet sensation that has been like oft imitated and repeated <laughs> by many other artists. So like she was doing this before um, 
Henry and Glenn even like this right. was sort of her weird um project of you know like similarly like destroying her idols right have any of them commented oh yeah yeah they um um Morrissey's manager was really into it and oh, like cool. really 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 tried to get him on board but Morrissey is um well exactly what he looks like an incredible weirdo and like has no <laughs> sense of humor so i think that was really hard for him to even get his brain around what we were doing and like why people would be interested in this and it was like during the death of nick cave's son so he was oh, not no. like yeah. he was into it but it was just sort of an awkward time to for him right. to get behind it you know and um but you know they were both i mean but he you know but nick cave has a sense of humor and he's like a good guy from all intents and purposes just you know? bad timing yeah and you know and so i think like when we do a new edition i think we could get like a, a more proper like official sign on oh sure yeah all right well let's uh move back <laughs> yeah, to yeah. more businessy <laughs> topics <laughs> just, that's um too fun not to ask about mm-hmm. um and there's so many stories too. oh yeah exactly i'm like maybe we shouldn't like it's like I it'll go on forever really restrain myself there <laughs> All right. Um, so I was interested in some of the more unconventional sales and funding methods that I've noticed. Um, I noticed you have a subscription program. You have a Patreon. I don't know if it's still in. We we stopped doing Patreon. Okay, and then um, but we no- do a different one. Uh, X or uh, well. Kickstarter bought a company called Drip that is the same. So it's, it's like actually a better version of Patreon, mm-hmm. but and now that is being resold to um, a local company. Actually, XOXO. Oh, XO. great! And then you you use Kickstarters for a lot of your books as well. Can you um, kind of talk about how that's worked for you and why you decided to do it? Um, mm-hmm. um, so the hardest part of um, Kickstarter specifically, or sort of all of the above. All of the above, but maybe start with Kickstarter. Sure, sure. So they do all sort of tie in together. Um, so the hardest thing about publishing is getting the word out. Is like right. letting people know that the book exists, what it is, who it's for, why they should care, any of it, you know. And and I think that's sort of where people really drop the ball generally. And um, and honestly. You know, and, and this is the funny part is like, and I th- maybe it's just because like this is our, like our society has such an awkward relationship with money that people really come at it a lot. And even like when we, we worked with, um, you know, these giant companies, these dis- distribution companies that we used to work with, they would have these ideas that like Kickstarter was owned by Amazon. You know, and it's, which Where does is, that come from? Um, they they used to process <laughs> payments through Amazon for oh. a brief period before they got you know a better like a uh, services provider, and but Kickstarter is an independent company you know yeah um and you know because it's it's really easy money model for them you know like they don't need investment or anything else they make money every day right you know by the extension of the services they provide and so um. But people were really, they had a weird, and publishers especially, just had such a weird feeling about Kickstarter where they were like, I don't know, you know, if it would like ruin our reputation or if. Right, too gimmicky or. 
I think just the acknowledgement, they felt like it was fundraising. Oh, like it would seem like they didn't have the cash flow to do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, and it's kind of one of these things, you know, it's like where I come from, who I am. Like, I have no qualms about that. You know, it's like if, you know, because we think of it as just like it's pre-ordering the book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then we like found out the hard way, you know, and I think we did it initially where the, so we were, I, th- I thought we were the first Kickstarter book project in 2010, but we were like the 40th, Oh, you know, <laughs> At, which, you know, I guess in the high, in the, you know, big picture is like pretty early on, yeah. but not double digits, <laughs> yeah. but, um, they, and it was, you know, it was just like, we had a book that like the print bill on it alone was like fourteen thousand dollars and we were just like okay we'll need to figure out a better way to work this out because it's just not you know and like we weren't expecting it to be a huge selling book right you know? right like we figured a few thousand copies was more or less what we were gonna get out of it but we wanted to do it and then that was right about the time that kickstarter was sort of it was in beta still mm. but you know, and it, and it just seemed like a good way to do that, you know, right. to build momentum and excitement and like sort of bolster people that were like feeling like they were part of our community and like invested in what we do and our well-being. And, you know, and so we didn't want to raise the whole thing, partly because we had no idea if that would work or not. So we just raised like $5,000 on top. Right, because you have to give the money back if you don't raise that much money. So you didn't want to put it all in. Yeah. yeah. And just also like... You know, it's like we have distribution in place. Like we have, you know, we didn't, it's not like this was the only way to sell the book. Right. You know, and that went well. So we continued doing that. Um, And then, you know, you gradually learn over time that there's some books that fit better on Kickstarter and some that don't. But then we had a weirder problem is like when we don't kickstart something, people wouldn't hear about it. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about that. It seems like a good way to gauge interest. Mm-hmm. And then it's a weirder one. Like we did a um, we did a really amazing book, Chocolatology, which is like all all about chocolate, science of chocolate, chocolate recipes, history of chocolate. And um, and we would bring it to events and people would be like, oh, I didn't hear about this. Oh, and, you know, and you're like, oh, but I don't that makes no sense because you're like right in the pocket. You know, and then they and then they would be like, "Oh, I didn't. Was there a Kickstarter? I didn't see it." And I was like, "Well, we don't always do Kickstarter." So that's how a lot of people were keeping track of your list was yeah. through Kickstarter. Do and, you still have that problem? Um. So now we do. We know more or less like demographically what works there and what doesn't. Um. And it because it, so it's like the fascinating thing is like so the average person that buys books at least for themselves is like a woman over fifty. Right. You know. Yeah. And primarily black women over 50 are like the number one consumers of books to read. <laughs> Say that again for the people in the back. <laughs> <laughs> the number one person who buys books is black women over 50. And mm-hmm. so be mindful of that when you are developing your book. And they really, you know, but that is not the average audience on Kickstarter. The average right. audience on Kickstarter is much younger, maybe half of that. I would, I, and I don't, mm. we don't like, they don't tell us hard numbers, but like we do meet with Kickstarter several times a year. And, you know, we say like, this is what we're publishing. And they say, okay, this works, this works. You really should do a project for this. We have a promotion for this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But 
their audience, I would guess, is in their late 20s, early yeah. 30s on average. Mm-hmm. They really like comics. They really like graphic books. They, you know, they really like all kinds of stuff that doesn't really land in trade accounts like bookstores. More gift book type. Yeah, and they they really, you know, they want like the radical history, you know, the more radical the better. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Is. Well, someone who's going to our alternative channels to get their books. Right. And what we found too that was fascinating is a lot of them they do it because they don't have time to go to the bookstore. Like they yeah. don't and that that's just like not their self image. They see that as like an old person thing. Right, right. Or a you know. more sentimental person thing. Yeah. And and that, you know, regardless of reality, that's the perception. So we found that that was like especially for some books. So we did um like the Faith Harper books. Um yeah. so we did the her first book was Unfuck Your Brain, I think. And then this is your brain on anxiety and then and those ones it just um I think the goal I think our goal was like five thousand dollars or something and we raised like forty some thousand dollars. And did you say unfuck your brain is one of your biggest sellers or um it w- well it will be uh-huh you know uh-huh. it just needs enough it's only been out like 18 months right but in another year it probably will be our number one book awesome like yeah. of all, all time or yeah yeah if it continues because nice. it's actually it's literally selling more every month than it did the previous month and yeah. it, it like at 18 months that's really unheard of in publishing normally you have like a reverse or like you know a half sign curve where you like you grow and then you fall down and then you you just watch it like shrink to zero every month you mm-hmm. know and so for this you know these kinds of books um that's just like sort of where the interest is yeah. and i think a lot of that was the you know the kickstarter obviously really helped mm-hmm. and it's just a book that doesn't saturate you know it just right. keeps finding more audiences uh, everyone's looking to be unfucked yeah. yeah and people are you know we did books like that 15 years ago and people did not appreciate them in this way. You know, it's really people are ready to admit that they want and could benefit from help. Yeah. You know, and they want to understand like a no nonsense guide to psychology by like somebody with credential and credibility. You know, they want all that. And, you know, and I think that's why it does so well. I mean, and, you know, and, and it's like we were talking this past week where we're like all of our best books are just sort of like are a better summary of existing literature you know than is out there do you mean in that they're more straightforward and don't talk down to the reader yeah yeah and so like um for those who are you know like it like in psychology for example there's like you know there's cbt and there's dbt right and you don't mix them you know it's like you'll read a book about one or the other Oh, you mean in the literature? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, because I was like, is that is that a thing that you're not supposed to do? <laughs> right. And so it's Whoops. funny because like we get a lot of people that will, you know, pe- like people that are in practices and they'll come in and they'll be like, you know, I can't believe that you aren't like tell- suggesting to people that, you know, to use this specific practice. And she's like, I'm not really suggesting anything. Like, I don't, I'm not like, because, you know, most... Well, let's face it. Most people that write books in psychology are selling services, which she's not. Right, right. Or they're speaking tours or, yeah. And so, or they have like an upsell to like a $99 product or like a $1,000 product or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, whereas she's just like, no, I just actually want to help people, Yeah. you know, and she was another one where like she was not, 
like she had been pitching like traditional um psychology publishers and then nobody cared because she didn't have enough platform and then she came to us and she was like well all the books that i buy are published by you so i thought nice (laughs) you know and and then that was a good you know and we're gonna have we are now publishing like uh, four to six books a year by her so that's great it's like at this rate i mean and that's the other reason why her books are doing so well is she's really keeping up yeah and she knows your audience probably as well as you do now (laughs) probably better um so you said something interesting about how other uh no one else would acquire her because she didn't have a big enough platform. Um, How do you, because that's kind of common knowledge is like, Oh, a nonfiction writer needs to have this big platform in order to sell all their books. Like, how do you relate to that idea? Like, cause it sounds like it's not quite as uh, a dumb idea. Yeah. I mean, it's like, so that, I mean, that's how the major houses work. That's how like the big five publishers, because that's, they don't know how to sell books. You know, they don't know how to like build the audience. So the only thing is they're like, Okay, you already have an audience. Okay, how big? All right, we can do this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so then, to me, a little bit, it's like, well, what's the point of you? Yeah. And so, I mean, they're very handy if you have like a runaway bestseller that you can't manage. Right. In terms know? of. Because they can handle and... the distribution, they have the financing, they have the staff, they have the access, they have all the pieces, you know? So, like, when Fifty Shades of Grey was too successful, that was a very smart thing for to do to sell the rights right you yeah. know but that you know they would never have bought that book from the author you no. know before it was tested you know because it would be it's like a bad absurd it's a terrible book you know i mean it would just be like the worst proposal ever you know and so the, but that's exactly it is like that person knew how to hustle right you know right and so um we have and, you know, and I, I was doing the, you know, year-end analysis just in January, and I ran into, like, a really shocking thing where I was like, every one of our best-selling books is the author's first book. Wow. I, you know, and, and you know, so it's not like, like, we've definitely, like, picked up authors that have been New York Times bestsellers in the past and things like that, and it never really, or people that became one out, and we retained the rights, you know. Right. And it never works, you know, like we know how to develop a book and we know how to make it where you're like showing the value of the book and who it's for, like, which is like the book's development Mm -hmm. and then how to like package and design the book to make it work. Yeah. And, you know, and so that's kind of, you know, like we're really looking at the substance and the merit of what it's offering. Right. You know, and um, which I don't think is normal. No. And and how would you do the research to find out whether the audience needs that? So, well, you would look and I, I have um I have hardened formulas in People's Guide to Publishing yes, for this. Yes, you do. Um, but the um I'm assuming you're not offer, asking for your own benefit. No, no. I mean, I like to hear it, but sure, uh, sure. other people may also benefit. Right. And so the there's a couple things you can do. So like we have, you know, so like Nielsen BookScan is like a piece of software where you can look up the lifetime sales and the like week to date sales right. of any book in print you know, that is not, um, you know, that, that has any kind of distribution, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, sometimes these numbers are very startling, sometimes startlingly high, sometimes startlingly low. And, you know, that really helps you to bear perspective because sometimes you'll, 
like when you're a member of the public or even a book publisher, you will see like sometimes a six figure marketing budget pumped into a book. And so it really feels like that book was successful, Yeah, you know, because you see it everywhere. But nobody actually <laughs> buys it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, if you ever go to like Book Expo America, which I believe has moved back to New York City, mm-hmm. you will, um, you know, you'll just, you'll, the people will buy basically like wallpaper <laughs> ads for their book cover. Right. Because they're just trying to figure out how to make people care. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like every inch of, you know, eye space, there's like a commodity mm-hmm. because that's like, they know that's where their audience is. That's, they know where that's the, where the accounts go. Right. You know, and that is like an increasingly corporatized space. So it doesn't actually work, you know? And so it's like, if you're like, it's kind of or- Orboros, like, because the people who are buying it are also selling it. And there's just so much in the same space. Like- and yeah, that they're, and they're also incredibly jaded, because they've yeah. seen and heard every sales pitch and line of bullshit and like lie basically to you know and so they just are really looking for substance mm-hmm. and i think like if you think those people are bitter and over it like try the general public like they've <laughs> yes. been advertised to for hundreds of years and are just so completely beyond fed up mm-hmm. you know and just like so trying to read between the lines to be like what's the scam here, you know? And and so this is sort of, we're looking at it where, you know, we're looking at like what's in print, what those books are selling, where the gaps are, you know, if, and sometimes there's really wide, um, I mean, sometimes it's actually kind of unbelievable. Like we're publishing a book on adult friendship this fall. Oh, I'd read um, that. Called Friending. And, um, and it's, it was unbelievable because when the author pitched us, and, you know, she has a credential. She's, like, a counselor that focuses on adult relationships in Washington State. And um, and she wanted to write a book on adult friendships. And we were like, oh, that's probably not something that we could do because there's probably so many books that we couldn't compete. We're a small house. Like, you might have maybe different perceptions, but we're pretty small in the scope of things and she um and but we hadn't responded to her yet and we did the research and we found there were zero books in print about adult friendships there's a lot of books like for clinicians and teachers and counselors and professionals like what are considered technical books like right not not books that we sold in bookstores but like you know you can get the $200 like field guide training manual to like and maybe your maybe your therapist tells you to buy the workbook version of it or yeah and um and then there's a lot of stuff for children and there's a lot of stuff for special needs children but there was not a single book for adults on how to make and maintain friends which was super fascinating to me yeah because oh i'm sorry there was a few like out of print christian books specifically but the christian book market has completely tanked because they all they basically lost um sales to amazon so because they don't they're oddly the christians were not terribly loyal to their local christian bookstores so that was not so like even in the era of like booming independent bookstores <laughs> it's just like this fascinatingly you would think this would be an audience that would be loyal to supporting their base but they were not um 
And so the even the Christian friendship books are out of print. So that was a fascinating case because we, you know, like you can thoroughly research it. You can look at it. Um, there was like a humor book that was published about adult friendships um, that came out, I think, late last year or maybe early. Yeah, it was l- late last year, or early this year from Chronicle, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but there's just nothing that is actual like practical information about like how to have friends. That sounds great to me. Exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> and and that was the other thing where we were like, okay, this is something that would really help people. Yeah, I hear people complaining about having such a hard time meeting friends as an adult. It's like, I'm not in school anymore. There's not this built in. And then I don't like the people I work with, so I don't want to hang out with them. It's like, Meh. Right. And so if you were just like not microcosm, but were you know, an independent publisher or a self-publisher or whatever. There's other ways you can do it. You can look at the sales rankings for categories on Amazon. And, you know, as long as you make sure that there isn't a celebrity that's dominating that category already. Or, you know, because it's basically like if all the sales are going to a single author, it may be that people are only buying it because it's that author, not because they're interested in the subject, Mm -hmm. you know. But um, I learned about Mpreg on this very podcast. (laughs) And for example... I don't know that's a book on the shelf type uh, genre. (laughs) No, no, but it's the same principle, you know, that like it would seem that anybody could write a book on about men being pregnant that would sell, you know, if you did it well and mm-hmm. to standard and reasonably and were respectful to your audience right you know whereas like you cannot um if you went and wrote like a southern cooking book you would not have the same results no oh no because yeah. if you're the wrong kind of person writing that you're gonna hear no end of shit <laughs> and it's just a category completely dominated by celebrities yeah you yeah know? And well cookbooks in general i would think yeah. Yeah. And that you basically now at this point to write a cookbook, you need to have like a television show or even better, a YouTube channel that is very successful or to be a personality of some other type or to be somebody that's famous for something completely unrelated. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that, you know, but you basically want to assess that, you know, and the thing I push, like I advocate for in the book is like to actively be a part of the communities that you are making books for, because then you'll know if your concept is full of shit, <laughs> you know, it's like you'll, you would know, like if I, you know, the, the friendship one is a difficult example, but it was like, if I was making that for an, a different population, I would have no way of assessing if they needed such a thing or if they would do it. But like as a person, I'm like, that would actually be such a practical, useful skill for so many people. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I've noticed is not a lot of publishing companies are able to sell books based on their own brand in the same way that microcosm is. And, um, they could, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to hear more about the intentionality of that for you and, Mm -hmm. um, how you, compare yourself and how you think that maybe even bigger traditional publishers might be able to do that better right or anyone and this is the interesting thing is now like the the major flip now is that the majors have been losing market share over the past 10 well you know depending how you look at it 100 years (laughs) you know but it's really been down most visibly in the last five to ten 
And so I do think it would be harder for them because, you know, like I said, it's like they know how to do a few things very well. And there's a lot of things they don't really know how to do, you know, but for um, even a medium sized independent, you know, even for like a company with 100 employees, you could still do the same thing that we do, um, which is essentially to develop so that all maybe not quite all, but every, you know, each of your imprints would have sort of a coherent set of messaging and would appeal to maybe not every book would be bought by every person, but they would at least like have a friend that would relate with it, you know? And yeah. there is sort of like some ideological underpinnings to the whole thing. And, and I don't even know, you know, it's fascinating because it's like, if you looked at most small presses, that is there to a point right you know like you'll see that up until the point when they sign with the distributor and don't need to represent themselves and then they're being sold like in a catalog with a hundred other publishers at which point they're not only doing you know books for a certain audience they're like oh we got a pitch for this other thing that seemed interesting to us so we did that too so you, is that that uh, extra inch or that je ne sais quoi that makes it so some people go all the way and some people don't is just like sticking with it once you get um, scaled up? I think it's hard. So I, you know, I mean, as to the why, I think it, I think it is just like it's very hard. So like my, I, I that, and this was the thing that I really enjoyed about working with the distributors is that we got to hang out with all the other publishers. You know, we got to like have those moments where, so like when Morrissey was writing his autobiography, he had like a contract fallout with Little Brown and I got mm -hmm. to hang out with the, hey. the, the guy from that publisher <laughs> as he like shook his head and cursed Morrissey's name. Oh. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh yes. Yeah. You know, but, and That's you know, right. and, and, and it was very funny, but on another level, it's like, it helps to understand like, the sort of the thought curve that's happening for all of them right. you know where uh, and like there was nobody well i mean we always joke that there is no other microcosm because there isn't you no. know and so and it is fascinating because like we just don't have competition in that way that because nobody is really doing what we do whatsoever but you know you'll see like a similar sized company that does like only books about photography like right. how to do photography or they'll publish like books of photography or you know things like that so it's more subject based than um ideology and, yeah yeah and that works really well you know because they then they have like a coherent you know so their brand matters to the trade it doesn't matter to the consumer like the only thing that matters to the consumer is they're like i was needing a book about how to take better product photography or better portraits or better you know iphone photography or whatever right you know they don't actually care who the publisher is because that's not a relevant part of the book right you know what they care about is like I have a need. This book fulfills that need, whether that need is an emotional need or a practical need, you know? And, and so what then makes that process fall apart is the publisher gets bored because they've done this for a number of years. It's a very hectic, very contextual job where you have to juggle tons of crap all the time and you're constantly just putting out fires. So then you get like a submission that you're like, Oh, this is interesting. It has nothing to do with the rest of what we do. But maybe we'll do it anyway. 
just kind of letting your personal like interests get in the way of staying on brand. Yeah, and something that's like compelling but wrong. Right. You know, and I have certainly fallen prey to that myself, and um, or I and I definitely when I was less um when I was easier hoodwinked, I would definitely allow myself to be hoodwinked by people on occasion with their mm-hmm. pitch, and um. Fortunately, these things are now all years in the past. That's good. Um, but you'll see that a lot where something is just like an absolute like sore thumb in somebody's list. Well, and you had the the story about the Jane Goodall book that uh-huh. I read and, and cringe. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like a cool book, but it is definitely a moment where people tried to warn us. Mm-hmm. Boy, did they ever. Well, and <laughs> you, you know? would think, so you, you got a book... Jane Goodall about just it was a nature book Mm -hmm. I I I forget what the uh so she Jane Goodall created a fellowship program for um a local boy who was um healing animals that he would find in the woods right and um she created this whole like scholarship for him and then they did a um I believe it was Discovery Channel or maybe it was the Nature Channel I think it was Discovery Channel program with him and about him and um and you know really like thought this kid was really cool yeah which he is yeah and um and you know and then he would like be the one where the pet store would call him when they had a sick animal that they couldn't figure out how to deal with it and then um when he adopted aria which is like a cousin of an ostrich it's the it's the character that the roadrunner tv show oh, is based on oh cute <laughs> he adopted one which is like bigger than any person i know to live in their family's home, you know, <laughs> when he was a child, you know, and did you ride it around with a little saddle? No, no, they're very, they're actually very frail. Oh, and so, and that's the other part where like they don't really exist in North America except for meat. Okay, and so, and it, and then I'm sure it's like a very expensive meat because like I've never I've heard never of seen it, it. Yeah. you know, and um. And so what they did was, you know, they had to basically like rebuild their entire home to like for this and yeah. for this bird to exist and to live safely. And so it's like a lot of photos of the bird <laughs> and like sort of the stories and, you know. I can kind of see how you would be able to meld, mend yourself or like a tie yourself in a pretzel to think that that would go in with this list though because it's like well it's a little unique and like (laughs) weird and down to earth connected to things like i can see how that would be well it's not that off brand kind of still works and it's jane goodall so you would think with a name like that you can do absolutely anything and she is a very sweet lady i really i mean i had very positive you know experience with that Mm mm-hmm but um, the issue is sort of she has a foundation now. She cannot control the foundation. The foundation is like it's like an independent creature that is sort of out from underneath her. Yeah. So they had some they tell demands her what to do about the way that the book came across. Or... Well, they just don't want to like use their membership to promote the book, and they don't want you know even though it's like her name on their organization, and then her personal passion has become climate change, which right. is a very real problem. Yeah. And you know, and so I think at event, you know, she like definitely put energy and effort behind it, and you know. But she's not doing a whole lot of 
book signings and <laughs> you know whatnot. How old is she now? And yeah, yeah that's the other issue. Yeah. She's very old. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I think she's in her eighties. I mean, her heyday yeah. was really quite a while ago, the seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. maybe before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, was when she was doing her primate work, and and so it's not anything like that. I thought, you know, and but it's more the issue is just like we don't publish books like that, right? Like we're not a nature publisher, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was really trying to package it like a gift book and make it work, and it just wasn't working. Just didn't work. And you know, we got many. I mean, we did, Barnes and Noble did it as like a face up promotion on their tables for the holiday, and that was probably the most copies we sold. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if that didn't work, yeah, that would be yeah. pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how many, how much time you spend in Barnes and Noble, but they can it can feel like a graveyard sometimes. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that's I mean, because they were the ones that lost the biggest chunk to Amazon. Yeah, you know, so that's where people, you know, people going in on price. That's where they go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you know the constant weekly drama of Barnes and Noble also. But yeah, yeah, right. It'd be fun to follow. Oh yeah, I enjoy as that you, news. As you you have listened to our our uh, <laughs> podcast, you know that we do like sprinkling some drama in there from time to time. <laughs> yeah, it's but yeah, so it's just like you want to make sure that. You know, and th- and that was the other thing is like I'm not a I don't buy nature books. Like I would never buy a book like this. And right. I think that was the other problem where it didn't come through authentically to the audience that it needed to land with. Because the rest of your books are books that you ask yourself whether you would buy or not. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. it's like, um, and then like I was actually reading a book this morning before I got here that um someone had recommended to me, and it's a book. About, like, life skills for autistic people, mm-hmm. or at least that's how it was pitched to me. But it's by a medical doctor <laughs> written to sort of parents, and it sort of writes about us like we're incapable of ever taking care of ourselves or oh, just learning. just takes agency away. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, and it's like, if you remember that show Life Goes On in the 80s where they had, like, the, the, uh, the main character had Down syndrome and the rest of the family basically treated him like he couldn't ever have a life, you know? And so it was like anytime somebody wanted to date him, they were like, this person is just taking advantage of you. And that's kind of, you know, and so it's like, this is a book where I'm like, I haven't looked it up yet, but I would hope for all intents and purposes that it failed a miserable death because it's like who, you know, like anybody that buys that book, buys that book out of self-hatred, you know? Yeah, and it feels like that kind of way of, relating to the world is is passe also just i don't think that's the yeah. future it's not contemporary <laughs> certainly Mm-mm. but so that you know that's like the best like most f- important feedback device you know advice i would have is like does it feel authentic like would it resonate with you would you buy this book you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay well moving on to a different subject <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what interests me the Heavy. most, to be completely honest, is like, okay. is like selections, how you select books, how you, but I would like to talk a little bit about Amazon. Sure. Um, You don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's over. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That was a big, like, wasn't it like the headline of one of the publisher's weekly emails that came out like in I November? I think it was shelf awareness. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that and being like, oh yeah they're they're right here right (laughs) that's cool so how's it working out it's been amazing it's been it's like and every day i like you know we have sort of like the attempt in the office is to be quiet 
and to like not interrupt each other verbally but i like ran through the building being like announcing (laughs) that our experiment is just it's so fascinating because so for perspective like how it works is so we're we publish we're the publisher we print in illinois those books used to get freighted to tennessee where they would then be shipped to the various amazon warehouses the primary one being in hebron kentucky and then those would be then distributed around the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so that contract ended in January. So now all of the books go from the printer to Portland, just behind where we're sitting, you know, in a, yeah. a adjacent building. And they, um, and then we ship them ourselves to the places that they're going, you know, and um, and we, you know, so it's like wholesalers and bookstores and gift stores and individual readers and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so um, we then, that gave us the first opportunity to not sell to Amazon. You know, when we first started selling to Amazon, uh, I can't remember the year exactly, but it was circa 2000, say 2000. Okay. They got a 24% discount off the cover price. Nowadays, I am contractually not allowed to tell you what discount we were giving them but let's say I, I, it was I a, mul- at a publishing company. <laughs> it was a multiple of that number that was not two. <laughs> let's say is the discount that they received. Yeah. <laughs> so ridiculous enough, even if it were. <laughs> and they, so that's, you know, and for perspective is like Amazon is a retailer, yeah. you know, who has argued that they are a wholesaler that needs a wholesale discount. So they, and then somehow by extension of that, they actually get a larger discount than any other wholesaler. And then they argue that they need advertising money from, for the sake of listing and selling the book, like mm-hmm. any other retailer does. Right. And so by the end, um, you're, you're just giving it to them basically for the cost of printing production and author royalty, yeah. you know? And so it just made made no sense for us because the only time that we would want to be there is when we had a publicity hit where like we had an author on NPR's weekend edition and they directed all of the sales through Amazon, which is just such a yeah. bummer. Yeah. You know, about that. and it's That's like true. NPR, you know, like it's like, owned by the public like we should be you think they'd know better <laughs> you know like that's the last place they should send you uh-huh, you uh-huh. know and so it was um a little tough you know it's but most months amazon was one percent of our sales net you know and you know and then sometimes when we were something like that it would spike to like eight percent right you know right. which is large enough to be annoying you know yeah and it's but it sounds like for you it wasn't that big of a loss no, no, it was a game. And so that was my my joke in shelf awareness is that I was like, why would you work with such an uncooperative account that is such a small piece of your pie? Yeah. Like yeah. it's just not worth it. You know, because and I, you know, and I I said that knowing that most publishers that's 30 40% of their business. Yep. Sometimes there I hope not more than that. You know, and that so those numbers I was just like, well, why and I don't you know, we definitely debated it in the office. We were like, "Who, whose idea was this not to do it anymore? I don't, and it, and it may well have been my idea. I don't remember. 
but just arose organically from everyone. Yeah. And then we, when we thought about it, we were just like, we could do this, you know? And, um, and we have a few other sort of veteran employees and they were like, we, you know, like you can't really keep them from getting there, but you can keep from giving that to them on their terms. Yeah. And you can keep from giving it to them at an extreme discount. Right. You know? Right. Because whoever's buying it from you and selling it to them is the one taking the hit. There. Yeah. And so what'll <laughs> happen. And so what Amazon has begun doing in recent years is they will order through a wholesaler when right. the publisher has no supply. And then, you know, they adjust the price accordingly. But a lot of it is they're using like surge pricing and demand pricing and things like that, you know. And so what we found, you know, and we had no idea if they would just stop listing our books at all. But we had, so they were selling a thousand to two thousand a month of Unfuck Your Brain, you yeah. know, on Amazon. And so that was fascinating because we were like, well, they're going to keep selling it. They're not going to just be like, oh, can't, you know, because Amazon is smart if, yeah. if they are anything. Oh. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to be like, oh, no longer available. Keep hitting reorder. It's not coming in. They're going to, like, investigate where else to get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for, for the cheap. And so the, the most fascinating thing that happened, and I think it happened in the last few weeks, is that, you know, they had gone from saying, you know, we expect this title to be back in stock in about three months to figuring out that they were never going to get more in stock. And then they eventually gave the buy button to Powell's for those books. All right. And so, and so, like the books are full price on Amazon, but if you go into Powell's, it's like ten or fifteen percent off. So it's actually cheaper to buy it from Powell's.com than it is to buy it from Amazon, or better yet, to buy it from us. That's great. And you know, and so that was like one of those moments. You know, so that was my like big announcement to the staff, where I was like, "We have won!" Like we, you know, it's like that weird experiment that everybody was like, "What are you gonna do? You know, are you gonna be okay?" We're gonna celebrate, <laughs> right? Yeah, they're like, "I'll bring you a sandwich when you're hungry and cold." You know, it it actually worked out perfectly. And then the weirder part was the new books. They were ordering all the. And who knows how, probably through Baker, but, you know, that's not, that's all, like, opaque, so you don't actually know. Right. But we could dig a little bit to find out. But, so they began listing our spring books, which we had sent them no data for. So they were doing their homework to find them. Wow. And then they were doing their homework to, you know, begin taking pre-orders for them. And so now this will be a fascinating part of it to like see what happens you know are they gonna sell every copy at a loss at some point because they're definitely announcing some of the books at far below retail right you know 30 40 percent off you know so it's like they're so strange we'll see you know and (laughs) but that's their whole thing and then i don't know if you saw like the did you see the fourth quarter reports no it was really awesome it it was like their sales were up but they had so overpromised that they would be even more up that their stock fell. Hey. <laughs> because people were like, You promised us record earnings. <laughs> you know? And and so it's it's fascinating. And then, you know, and then it's like the amount of their business that is books shrank even more. Right. In their pie chart, you know. But that and I just thought it was hilarious that I was like, Wow, even like even the a global monopoly like the largest retailer in the world 
it's like it could never grow fast enough to satisfy the stockholders. No, of you course know? not. And especially when it's and then like if you've read all the like consumer speculation stuff, it's like they will never be able to raise their prices enough to actually make money by selling things until they have no competition. Well, I mean, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. So that's why they just keep slashing. And then, you know, and it's like the same thing where it's like, it's, it, you know, the, the figure is like, it'll be, you know, if we raised all prices by 4%, we can make all goods in the US, but like the consumer is not willing to pay that extra 4%. Right. If it's available for less. Yeah. But it's like, if even so, the consumer is not willing to spend the extra like 3% price hike on average, which Amazon would need to become profitable in their retail division. I didn't realize that that was such a long game for them. I thought it was a very <laughs> long game. And it's like, you know, but it's the, the fascinating part to me is that I'm like, there's money being made at the top for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, and, you know, but it's just like all like liquid assets where they're like, it's all speculated money. Like they don't need to be a solvent company hmm. to do that, you know? So that is. And, you know, and they do make money on web services if right. you follow all this stuff. But, you know, so it's not like it's totally a shell game or anything like that. But it is completely fascinating to look at it that way. Yeah. And so that was kind of the other thing where um, – and I, I did – I saw another um, – I think it was um, the Wall Street Journal maybe where it just said like online consumer spending was just moving away from every other retailer to Amazon. Right. Yes. And that how hard it was to do online retail. And I was like, our online retail is, I mean, we definitely had some bum years, like mm -hmm. 2011 or so, 2012. But now it's just like way up, you know? Yeah. And well, it, and you have a subscription program too now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we've had that since I think 2007 or eight. Oh, okay. Maybe. And, but it was fascinating to watch how. You know, I mean, it's more like when we do events, when we do certain things, like it results in a lot of web sales. Yeah, just from your site in particular. And because, yeah, and what happens is, you know, they'll go to their local bookstore, they'll see that they don't have it, they'll order it from us. That's great. And I think that's why our Amazon sales have always been so low is mm -hmm. because, you know, we've sort of trained our customers and our fans and our authors to be like, this is where you go to buy the book. Right. Well, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So we're running out of time. Okay. So <laughs> let's do um, just if you have any advice for someone who, I mean, obviously you wrote a whole book about it. Sorry. Um, but what would you. <laughs> <laughs> a little. Um, what would be like the main piece of advice you would give someone um, for s who wanted to start their own publishing company? So you really want to find a vacant niche just not just for your books but like something that you could wrap your whole company around mm -hmm. and um and you really you know people really um we call it the ground game here where which is just like showing up you know yeah. it's like going to conferences and doing events and you know just like hanging out and not just like making a website and building your seo it's like right you know it's like you want and so like we did tours for years and things like that to just kind of you know tell people that we exist yeah you know and i feel like that's the part that you know it's work people don't always want to do it yeah that's going to take up a lot of your uh, weekends <laughs> right and but that's kind of how you make it work mm -hmm. on the other hand you know and so 
I would say, you know, like, and you want to make the kind of thing where you can build a ground game around it. Right. Uh, and so there's a local publisher, Eraserhead, um, that is has is really good at that. So they do Bizarro fiction and they have just and they have their own like convention for Bizarro, Bizarro Con and you know and and so and those books similar to Lita Mpreg, those books are very like have an audience, they sell, people are into it. I read The Haunted Vagina. Mm-hmm. That, okay. Is that them? Is that Eraserhead or is I, that a different company? I think it might be one of their imprints oh, okay. of which they have, I believe, six. It was set in Portland. I mm-hmm. do remember that much. <laughs> and, and so that... Well, it, partly. And partly in a magical land inside of a woman's vagina. <laughs> <laughs> right. But in Portland. <laughs> but in Portland. <laughs> and so they they have... They do it really well in that like, when you think of Bizarro Fiction, you would probably think of them first. Right. You yeah. know, and there are definitely like people dipping their toe into that genre now, but that's the kind of the way that you would want to found a small press is to be like, how do you like, what will people think of when they think of you? Like, what are your interests that resonate that where, you know, you want to have an audience where there's at least 5,000 people, you know, ideally 50,000, but you know, you, yeah, <laughs> because it's like, they're not all going to buy your books but they'll all talk about your books. Right. They'll you know? be paying attention to what you're doing. And so, you know, it's like, and I didn't really understand that fully when I was younger. And, you know, I definitely wasn't like of that mind or like thinking, you know, cause I wasn't intending the microcosm to be a, a business. Like I was thinking more of it as like something that would be like useful resources. And so I wasn't like, you know, I was really like thinking within subculture and not really thinking like broader based development and so it's kind of the thing, too, where then you realize that with time, you won't just sell your stuff to, like, people that love bizarro fiction. There are, like, adjacent populations. Right. You know, like, there are people that are not quite a part of that, but they get it, you know, mm-hmm. and they aren't going to buy everything that you do, but they're going to be like, this is a really cool book, yeah. you know? And that, um, and so, and I think, like, a lot of the stuff that I did when I was younger was, like, not really bringing those people in i was like developing in a way that was fairly repelling you know even (laughs) and so just sort of figure out you know like because it's like you know it's like one thing to be like a cool clubhouse but like a cool clubhouse also feels kind of like you're not welcome yeah i can see that yeah that's a that's a good way to uh think about it Mm -hmm. um all right well we're gonna wrap it up do you uh where can people find you so our um, we have a retail walk-in spot at twenty-seven fifty-two North Williams Avenue in Portland. If you're inside that large vagina of Portland, <laughs> if you're not, um, you can go to microcosm.pub, and that's where you can look at our online store and like scope out and look at all of the um, various things that we do. Yeah, and we'll link it all on on our web page, which by now should look different. <laughs> by the time of release (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) all right well thank you so much it was a really great talk and uh yeah Mm -hmm. see you later thank you thanks for listening to the hybrid pub scout podcast and this interview we just had with joe beal of microcosm if you are interested in getting a copy of a people's guide to publishing you can enter our giveaway either on our website or on facebook or on twitter at hybrid pub scout or go to microcosm.pub.
grab your copy and whatever else you are interested in on that website because there's a lot of cool stuff on there. Find us online at hybridpubscout.com, at hybridpubscout on Twitter and Facebook. And thanks for giving a rip about books. <laughs>